I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Okay, guys, this is going to be part B. We're starting to record part B. Go ahead, Dan. <laughs> well, Mo, it's great to be here with you again on part B. <laughs> Whether you're listening to this continuously, where A flows into B, or now you're joining us for the first time, what Mo and I are talking about is, is there a mathematics of the mind? And in the journey that this body called Dan has been on, and maybe it overlaps with the body called Mo, and everyone listening, you can see if it resonates with you, is this journey for me was to try to see, could I get the scientists to get along with each other? Mm. Could an anthropologist find common ground with a neuroscientist, for example? So the proposal that mind is the mathematical quality called emergence. So it's not a made up, weird, non-scientific term. Emergence is a proven aspect in mathematics of complex systems. Just look at that. If you're a linear person and you don't like the word emergence, it would be like saying, I don't like the word respiration because I don't like science and I don't want to think I need to breathe. Yeah, but the obvious observation that cannot be ignored here is that your mind is developing mine in this conversation. And that's an emergence of my mind due to the interconnectedness. between Exactly, exactly. And the pandemic we're having now reveals the interconnectivity just through a virus. Racism that we're revealing now reveals how we have systematically across time demoralized and dehumanized people. And now humanity is waking up saying, let's stop doing that. That's about our interconnection as well. And interestingly, even environmental justice issues is about the interconnection of all of life. So interconnection, while a linear scientist might say, I don't believe in that, it's a, it's a nonsense word. When you look at the system science, whether it's of humanity, of viruses, or of our whole ecosystem called life on earth, we are massively, you can use the following words, interconnected, interdependent, interrelated. There's lots of words you can use with the terms, but the implication is all the same, that Elements of the system called life on earth have huge impacts on each other directly and indirectly, and that we're in a, if you will, a spider web-like set of interconnections, if you can picture a spider web, rather than just, if you picture a ruler, inch one goes inch two, inch three, inch four, that would be linear. We're more like a spider web set of interconnections. What was that forest you told me about last time? Yeah, yeah. So... This work I do is based in science called interpersonal neurobiology. And I got a request from a a religious leader, Ed Bacon, who said, Dan, he was one of my students, actually. He said, I'm bringing 50 religious leaders on a bus to go to a forest in Utah. Will you come? Now, you don't know Ed, perhaps, but anything Ed asks you to do, you say yes, because he is pure love, brilliant and uh are you listening ed are you listening (laughs) he's talking about you so of course i just said yes i didn't even know what it was but i just said yes and then when the time finally came i realized i had to go somewhere i thought 50 people were just going to come to la or something (laughs) so anyway so i realized i had to actually travel somewhere so whatever i went where we went was a forest in utah 
that's named after the tree that's dominant there called Pando Populus. So it's called the Pando forest, P-A-N-D-O. And Pando Populus is the term for the quaking aspen tree. And when we arrived there, what we found is 57,000 trunks that look like 57,000 independent aspen trees. And when you dig six inches beneath the surface of the soil, you come to find, as scientists have, one root ball. And then when you randomly test the DNA all around the grove, it's one. It's the same DNA. It's amongst the largest and oldest living organisms, beings on the earth, organisms on the earth, right? So Pando is a great uh, analogy for us to say that when we live on the surface, we think we're all separate like nouns. But when you go, as David Bohm once said, when I went for a walk with the guy who started this whole Pando movement, whose name unfortunately is escaping my hippocampus, so I can't repeat it here, but he's 95 and he was on the bus. So I go for a walk with this 95-year-old leader of the whole thing, Ed is walking with some other people. So I said to him, I said, what do you think we can do for humanity as a lesson from the Pando Forest? And he said, well, David Bohm once came to visit him at his university as a professor of religion. Mm -hmm. And remember, religion means to link together again. So it's fascinating, the deeper meaning of religion, right? To relink. Mm -hmm. um, I never thought of that. Yeah, I never thought of it either. So we're walking along, and I'm not a religious person. And I don't usually use the word even spiritual, but I'll tell you another story about spiritual. Yeah, we will. I want them to hear that. Yeah. So I'm walking with this gentleman whose name I wish I could remember. And he says, Dan, David Bohm came to visit me. And he said that, you know, in one realm, we think things are noun-like entities. And that's the large macro-state world that Newton studied. But as David Bohm beautifully says in the implicate order, there's another realm that's the microstate realm that he and others in quantum physics studied. And that microstate realm is where things are not entities or nouns, they're verbs. They are events that are probability fields. A quanta, a unit of energy is a probability field. And so if you're living only in the Newtonian classical physics level of reality, then for you, everything's a noun. But when you realize there's another layer, another realm, just like we have a water realm we can swim in and an air realm we can live in, you have two realms. Nobody freaks out. Oh my God, there's an air realm up here in the air world. And then I dive in the water and I'm floating. Oh, I'm freaking out. That can't be true. It's not scientific. You can't have a water realm where properties are one way where I, I drop an object like a snorkel mask and oh my God, it floats Mo. That must be a dream. It must be non-scientific. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, this is wrong. We shouldn't study it. It doesn't exist. Forget yeah. it. It doesn't exist. All that exists is what I was born into. It's air. Now, shut up. Don't give me this <laughs> non-scientific stuff, right? So no one freaks out about an air realm and a water realm. Well, when you really dive into it, and I was able to spend time a week in a monastery with 150 mathematicians and physicists, many of them quantum physicists, talking about this stuff. And the, the cover story, a month before my book, Aware, which talks about the Wheel of Awareness, came out, the cover story of Scientific American was, where does the quantum realm meet the Newtonian classical realm? Okay, it's the cover story. So my book, Aware, is all about this. And we'll talk about the hub in a moment. And I was going, this is going to totally destroy my career. You're going to upset a lot of people. Eh? <laughs> yeah. And I said, but you know, the brain science wasn't enough 
to try to understand the, I did a survey of 10,000 people doing the Wheel of Awareness, and it just wasn't enough. So I couldn't just stay with the brain science. There wasn't anything there to really reveal some mechanism beneath what all these people doing the Wheel of Awareness were saying, which I'll tell you about in a moment. So I had to go to some other aspect of science. I looked in anthropology and sociology and all the fields I draw on. And the only place I could find resonance was with physics and math. So here I was with 150 physicists and mathematicians. And I said, let's talk about energy. What is it? And let me finish the Pando story first. So I go with Ed, I'm on this thing, and he says these things. We go to the forest, they have me do the wheel of awareness in the Pando Grove. I'm in this grove doing it, and the forest ranger who was protecting Pando populace, the wheel, he's never meditated before in life. He gets into the hub instead of being on the rim. And even doing the eighth sense, you get a sense of interconnectivity. That's great. And you get it almost like you're hearing a sound, it's like a known. But the knowing in the hub for this happens almost every time with somebody who's never meditated before in their life. They get in the hub. And as one Microsoft engineer said when I did this with Jack Cornfield, takes the microphone and he's like teary. He goes, I don't know what you did to me. I've never meditated before, never been in therapy. My wife dragged me here because I just retired. But when I got in that hub, I realized we're all interconnected. We're all part of the same essence the butterfly, the bee, the gardener, the hose, the water, it's all the same and he's crying. And then in another country where they asked me to do the wheel in a parliament, a parliamentarian comes up to me in the break and he's in tears. He goes, I didn't want to share this with everybody, but I never felt so much love. I never felt connected to everyone and everything in that hub, but I didn't want to share it because people thought I was weak. And then in a survey, that's what people experience. Isn't it amazing? It's so obvious. Yet we all completely miss it. Completely miss it. And this is where the AWARE book is so fascinating because I think the brain science folks said, why did Dan leave brain science? And I almost had to apologize in the book. I said, I know my brain scientist colleagues say, mind is just brain activity. Consciousness comes from mind. Consciousness, therefore, is now come to the brain. Don't go beyond brain science. I'm telling you, Mo, just as recently as a couple months ago, when we could be in person, I had a very revered brain scientist chased me down the hallway, begging me, in fact, two of them in another setting too, one was in Europe, one was in the United States, chasing me down the hallway saying, stop talking about energy and physics and math. Why? I said, they said, stick to the brain science. I said, there's actually nothing in brain science that helps us say the 10,000 person survey. Why? When people go from being on the rim where things are kind of like nouns to bending the spoke around, or dropping the spoke and just dropping it to the hub and people experience timelessness. The noun-like entity realm disappears and they sense directly, not like someone's telling them this, this is without me ever saying anything about these realms. They say things are all interconnected. Things are now, they become verbs. The whole world is this emergent set of events and they're shifted because of it. This is why when people were facing death in my practice years before I did this in workshops, people would find this relief because they could be in the hub. So then the question was, is there a branch of science that might, just might, be the beginning of an insight into what the hub of the wheel of awareness is? Now, it's a metaphor, that wheel. So 
What we're saying is the mental experience of being aware, when I say good morning, Mo, you have both the good morning sound and you have the awareness of it. So my question as a scientist is, what is awareness itself? And then when I was hanging out with these physicists a long time ago now, over a dozen years ago, I had the data from the survey. Nothing in brain science illuminated what might be going on. Why was it timeless? Why were things going from noun-like entities to verb-like events? What was going on? So then I had these chats with these mathematicians and these scientists who said the following thing. I said to them, years ago, that time was 20 years before, I made this weird proposal to a group of scientists that the mind might be, underscore might, 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 might be an emergent property of energy. They go, okay, that sounds weird, but whatever. I said, so I want to know from you, <laughs> a physicist, what is energy? And so some would say the classical thing, you know, literally classical physics, energy is the capacity to do work. But many of the quantum physicists says, no, that's not enough. Energy is this. I said, what? They go, well, the word energy is for the general process of the movement from possibility to actuality. And I remember going for a walk around this monastery, this old converted monastery. The first time I heard that, I heard it many times since, but when I heard it from the physicist, I said, say more, what do you mean by that? And they go, well, that's it. It's the movement from possibility to actuality. So when I was with some graduate students in a, I put on a napkin and then ultimately in a book, a drawing of this, which in physics, there's a term a probability distribution field, right? So at the top, you have certainty, which would be 100%. And actuality is when a possible became an actual, it's 100%. But you go to various degrees of probability all the way down to the lowest level of probability, which is maximal uncertainty, basically. So let's say there are a million words you and I share. Before I say the word, the chance of you knowing it is one out of a million. So it's not quite zero. So as you know, the physicists don't say zero. They say near zero, which is very cumbersome as a writer to always be writing near zero, near zero. But in the bottom most part of this y-axis of a graph we'll create now is the near zero position of maximal uncertainty, lowest probability, where there's a million words. Well, you'd have one out of a million chance to guess it. But when I finally say ocean, bam, you're up at 100%. So I go from this bottom place. Now, if we say that chronological time or flow is the x-axis going left to right, then at this moment when I haven't said anything, we're at the bottom. But once I say ocean, we're way at the top, 100%. Now, you can make a three-dimensional graph by talking about how many things happen all at once and just, just call that diversity. But that gets hard to talk about a three-dimensional graph. But if you make it three-dimensional, then the bottom part of this graph is in the shape of a plane. And when I drew it, I said, what would you call this? I said, well, if they say it's a movement from possibility to actuality, and in this diagram, this is a plane, then this would be called the plane of possibility. And I talked to my physicist colleagues there, and they said, yeah, that is what Arthur Zients, who was there, says is the he likes it to call it the sea of potential. Other physicists would call it the quantum vacuum. It's the formless source of all form. And then I'm going, oh my God, what are the qualities of that place? And it turns out that this formless source of all form, the generator of diversity, is basically where potentiality sits 
before it rises up to, you can have subsets. Like if I say, Mo, I'm going to say one of five of the oceans on the planet. Yeah. So now we're up at a plateau, which would be a subset. Which is 20%. Right, 20%, exactly. So now only five peaks can arise from there. Atlantic Ocean, Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean, et cetera. So in that plateau, it's a subset of possibilities. The certainty is much greater that you could guess one out of five. 20% is better than one out of a million. Okay, so now you have a diagram with three things we're going to talk about. An actualization is a peak when it's gone up to 100%. A subset of possibilities we'll call a plateau because it's like this encircling thing with, in this case, five options that could arise. And if we drop all the way to the bottom, we're at the plane of possibility. So you have a plane, you have plateaus, and you have peaks. Sometimes a peak comes straight out of the plane. Sometimes it is only coming out of a plateau. So then I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, oh my God, what if a thought is a peak or an emotion is a peak or a memory is a peak, but a state of mind which has the mood you're in for particular thoughts to arise, like I'm depressed, I'm no good, life should kill myself would be particular things coming from plateau. And what if the thinking were just beneath a peak or the emoting would be just beneath a peak or the remembering on its way to a memory so that the mind is this emergent, when we say it's an emergent property of energy, it's an emergent property of the movement along a probability field, right? So now you say, okay, well, that's fine. That's what thinking and emoting and remembering are about. And you can even have a state of mind or mood or intention as a plateau. And then I look at it and I go, oh my gosh, people are describing the hub as timeless, as boundaryless, as filled with this incredible expansiveness. Repeatedly, people use the phrase, it's empty but full. Yeah, which is very spiritual. <laughs> I know. And I look at the diagram and I go, the plane of possibility is all those things. In the quantum realm, there's no arrow of time, which the arrow of time is directionality of change. So because of the second law of thermodynamics, when you're in the macro state world... Hold on, hold on. Let's sum it up for our listeners for a second before we go into this. I see you talking about two very, 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 very diverse topics here. One is the mind being that emergent self-organizing, but basically all about organizing that energy flow. One facet of mind, yeah. One facet of the mind. And then you're talking about the real reality. If you have any basic understanding of the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics and the idea that things are basically emergent as well. So they are always in that state of being a probability and the state of being an actuality, an actualization. And then you say it's the movement. Energy is the movement from that possibility, that probability state to an actual state, to actuality, right? Exactly. Basically, our mind is capable of bringing those two together. So those thoughts basically collapse the wave function. And that's where the overlap between physics and life begins, which is where we started this second part of the conversation, which most scientists, for some reason, ignore. Well, ignore, they despise it. I mean, I've yeah. gotten so many people yelling at me for trying to connect math and physics to mind I can't even tell you. But it's indisputable. Quantum physics will teach you that without the observation, without the life form, the mind, if you want, physics doesn't exist. We're just stuck in an infinite probability wave function until you observe it, until you actually turn it from 
that possibility to actuality. Yeah, I really want to honor that in physics, there's a big debate about what the Copenhagen interpretation, as you're exactly saying it, really means. And so I want to honor that. But just to say that there really isn't a dispute about quantum physics existing. And in 2015, for example, a paper in a physics journal came out called Closing the Final Loophole, where everyone who's pushing back on the massive interconnectivity demonstrated in something called non-locality right, or entanglement, uh, everyone was pushing back saying, oh, the research studies were had this problem, that problem. Finally, they closed all the loopholes. And in 2015, it's done. It's accepted. Entanglement exists. Now that we can talk about in a moment. But we want to honor that there is controversy. And I want to say this in terms of applying it to the mind. When I work with physicists, they say that what I'm describing is consistent with physics, but not stated by physics. So in terms of being consilient, that's what we want to try to be is consistent, even if we're pushing the boundaries. And for me, the survey of the 10,000 people who said things like, just stay with that one phrase, empty but full. And I said, what do you mean by that? They go, I have no idea. That's just, <laughs> that's just how it feels. I said, what else does it feel? And this is what people say, timeless. Now, let's just talk about the arrow of time for a moment. I love timelessness. So the arrow of time, what is that? That's a phrase we use in science to say, that in the macro state realm of what's called classical Newtonian physics, likely because we have something called the second law of thermodynamics where stuff is falling apart. So if you and I, Mo, we cracked open an egg to have breakfast, we can't uncrack the egg. Exactly, yeah. And that's it called the directionality of change. It's very likely that when the mind's experience of consciousness encounters the arrow of time, this directionality of change, we call it, quote, time. So there's no question, directionality of change exists in the macro state realm. That's just a finding that can't be disputed. However, when you get to the quantum realm, this micro state realm, there is no arrow of time. There's no directionality of change. So what was absolutely amazing was when I collected the 10,000 person survey, it was before I had this deeper understanding of physics. So I collected all the data, I made all the recordings, I found these findings, nothing in brain science could correlate with it. But then when I saw in physics that there are these distinct realms, here's the proposal, that the hub of the wheel of awareness is a metaphor, the wheel is just a metaphor. We can do it as a meditation, we can teach it to kids, that's great. The mechanism that I'm proposing is what that hub is, It is the plane of possibility, the quantum vacuum, the sea of potential. And once you do that, people in physics are excited about it, like Arthur Zayans, Minos Kafatos, other physicists, really excited about it. People in the field of meditation get excited about it, like John Kabat-Zinn and Jack Kornfield and others. And then when you see that three things seem to come out of that hub, you begin to have really interesting dialogues with people in fields I never was raised to talk about, but let's talk about spiritual fields. Meaning and connection are what people often say they mean by the word spiritual. And for religion, when I've spoken with leaders in these fields about this proposal that consciousness comes from this plane of possibility, another phrase for it is the generator of diversity. Now make an acronym out of that, the G-O-D. (laughs) <laughs> and I've talked to my Ooh. 
Big topic. I know. I've talked to my theistic religious leaders, including people in Ireland when I was honoring my dear friend who passed away, John O'Donohue, who was an Irish priest. And I said, I'm a scientist, but for me, the G-O-D is the plane of possibility from whence consciousness arises. And I went to them and I said, is that blasphemous to you? Does that insult you? They said, not at all. Not at all. It's a bridge between science and spirituality, between research and religion. I've done tons of research on spirituality myself. I'm also a scientist like you. And so the idea to me is that if you really, really bring it together, the G-O-D description is sometimes sort of the brand is owned by a religious institute or an ideology of some sort. And it tells us that this G-O-D has a certain shape, a certain character, a certain behavior, and you have to believe in that. But the way you describe it, which is the infinite possibility, is basically because we don't know the extent of that capability. We don't know the extent of possibilities. We don't have to know that it is the universal consciousness that connects everything, really. If you want to put it together, it's that ability to create as well. Well, exactly. So to translate that into some mental state language, sometimes we get stories of who we think we are that you can call plateaus that give rise to only certain emotions, certain memories, certain thoughts. Those are peaks, right? So then the way to look at it just from a mathematical point of view is you're told from the time you're a kid, you're Mo, I'm Danny, you know, whatever. In school, they say, Mo, be certain, know the right answer to the test. So certainty comes in peaks. And you're doing your studying and you have to be certain, be certain, be certain. Everything pushes you to live in specific plateaus that give rise to the correct answer to test, for example. And then you go and you have your job. No one usually gives you uh, support for just saying, God, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it's a fascinating question. Exactly. <laughs> right? So now what we're saying is that those plateaus and peaks can be isolative. They can make you feel like you're only valuable if you live with certainty. But when you learn to live with the liberation of the plane of possibility, let me say what I mean by that. When you drop beneath these sometimes imprisoning plateaus, some plateaus are really useful. If I play ping pong with my son, I want to get into my ping pong plateau so I know how to swing the paddle, right? And if I'm not playing ping pong and I'm playing Scrabble with my wife, I don't need my ping pong plateau. I don't have to learn to play ping pong brand new every time. I can actually access establish that. Skills, I can get to that. Especially plateau, with yeah. my son. He's a really good ping pong player. I will play him. Okay. All right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll play together one day when we can be together. So, so now you say, okay, well, all of modern life reinforces an illusion of our separation as noun-like entities that live in these plateaus and peaks. So what in this PEP community, for example, what we're saying is that the disruption of the pandemic with the social injustice that's being revealed, with more people dying of color or marginalized, with the environmental destruction that is a long-range pandemic, not so long-range, but longer than a virus, these are moments of disruption where we have to drop beneath the plateaus of separation and the peak way of approaching problems, drop into the plane. And what does dropping into the plane mean? Living from the plane, not just in the plane, but from the plane means you learn to let life happen. When we realize that three things seem to come from the plane, 
One is interconnection, which makes sense given the physics of what we're talking about. Another is the spaciousness of awareness. Why awareness would come from this sea of potential, this quantum vacuum, I have no idea. But it just seems to be the case. I don't know why. It's fascinating. Why? And you don't have to know why. You just have to know that it's there. That it's there. But the third thing is love. I love that. People keep on talking about interconnection, the presence, this open awareness, and love being almost like they're three threads of a singular tapestry of life. And so then you say, okay, well, so living from the plane means accessing love, interconnection, and presence. And then what people have described when they do the wheel of awareness on a regular basis, I do it every day, you're lost in your rim, which are plateaus and peaks, and that's fine, and you explore them and differentiate them, fine. But when you then drop into the hub or look at the space between mental activities, which is the hub, really, when you access that plane of possibility, you learn to let life happen. You lean into this fundamental process, basically, where the plane of possibility is the portal through which what we talked about before, integration, arises. Plateaus and peaks can block integration when you drop into the plane and let life happen. Love emerges, which is the integration made visible. And then as you learn to live this way, you, you learn to learn from this spacious openness. And as the Brooklyn Public Library quote from a beautiful artist says, having abandoned the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander. So this flimsy fantasy of certainty are plateaus and peaks. And when you drop into the plane and learn to live from the plane, suddenly life has a very different quality to it. You realize that while you may get in a plateau and peak that thinks you're a noun, and I think Mo is there and Dan is here, I don't just think, oh, we're interconnected. I feel it. I know it. That body called Mo and this body called Dan and everyone else listening, we're just part of the pando reality of interconnection, right? And this practice that you can do every day, people say, well, how do I do it? How do I do it? People describe, because we have this big community, we call it a we community, because you say, I do have a body that's a me, but I do have relationships that's a we with people on the planet. But integration means you honor differences and promote linkages. How do I integrate my identity? Well, we have a funny term called we, me plus we equals we. So no one is saying give up your enjoyment of the body. You're taking care of your body. You're feeding your body. You're sleeping your body. You're exercising your body. That's all you and that's the individual. That's fine. That's I or me. But we need to realize on this planet, and this disruption is a moment to do that, that the future of life on earth, the future of humanity, depends on us liberating the love, interconnection, and presence that will guide us to be living more like verbs. And when we start to embrace that realm, things are going to change because we are going to do this together. And the beautiful thing about humanity, as you pointed out, Mo, is that consciousness can rise above. What does that mean? The plane of possibility is always there beneath whatever plateaus and peaks of habit, of behavior, of destructive racism, of ways of destroying the planet. You drop into the plane of possibility and we do this together. We can be incredibly collaborative, connecting, creative. All that stuff comes from the plane of possibility. And that's, that's the idea. That is incredible. Seriously, then, this is amazing. Now, I want to close with the question that is the dearest to my heart and my life story. But 
Before I do that, if you guys are here still, you absolutely love this, take a moment now to please share. Tell others so that we can enjoy this together. Reality is the only way for us to succeed, to make billions of people happy is for you to participate and tell others to join our conversation. Then I want to ask the question that is perhaps dearest to my life story. What does all of this mean to death? Where does death stand within all of this? Yeah. Well, it's an amazing question, Mo. I want to just say, first of all, thank you for having me. And Oh my God, you are amazing. You are amazing. Thank you so much for the time and wisdom. Thank you for your time and wisdom. The inspiration for pervasive leadership is the idea that everyone can contribute to living like this. And you're asking a very powerful question about death. And I think I said this in one of my books about when my father died, he was a mechanical engineer. So he was trained in math and he was trained in not systems thinking, but trained as a linear thinker. And I could never, ever talk to him about anything like what we're talking about today or spiritual things or anything. And he was sick for a long time and he was getting very, very sick and close to dying. And he asked me one time when I was visiting him, what's going on with me? Am I dying? And I looked at his vital signs and I said, dad, I think you're dying. And he said, what should I do? I said, well, you should talk to anyone you have leftover business with because the way I'm seeing this pattern going is you won't be here much longer. And he looked at me with terrified eyes and he said, where am I going? And I thought he's going to probably kick me out of the house once again, if I say anything that smacks of non-linear science. So I took a deep breath and I said, I have no idea. He goes, oh, come on. You must have an idea. I said, I don't know where you're going. I, no one knows what happens with death. Well, what do you think might happen? I said, okay, okay. Here's what I think might happen, but I don't know. He goes, okay, what? And I said, there once was a moment in time when there were these huge number of sperm and huge number of eggs that could have combined. And amazingly, out of the massive, almost infinite possibility of combinations, one sperm and one egg got together and made the unique person that you are. Well, he seemed to like that. And he goes, okay. And I said, so then you get about a hundred years to go from possibilities of the possible combinations into actualities, and we're given about 100 years. And one thing that might happen with death is you are gonna have this transition. I said, Dad, I've been a therapist for over 25 years at that time, and no one's ever come to me for therapy saying, I'm freaking out, I'm freaking out, where was I before? I was conceived. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, there was a time you didn't exist before you were conceived. No one flips out about that. But what if you're going to exactly the same place? You get 100 years of actualization, and then you're going to melt back into the sea of possibility. possibilities. And the tension and fear on his face dissolved. We were holding hands. He looked at me in a way he had never in my whole life looked at me and said, thank you so much. I feel so peaceful. And he looked so tranquil. And that was the last I saw him and he died. And Mo, that's the closest I can come to saying what I think death is about. And I'll tell you that whole experience of the wheel and exploring it over all these years has given me a peacefulness about death where it's really about, if you say like I wrote a book called Mind with questions about who are we, what are we, and why are we here? We're here to promote more integration and whatever moments we have in these bodies 
to promote integration in the world, honoring differences, promoting linkages. Basically, it's social justice and environmental justice, and it's joy and it's love. Those are all manifestations of integration. So you say, okay, whatever the amount of clock time in this arrow of time dimension of the Newtonian world, I get to live in this body. When I face death, I'm going to melt back into that G-O-D, that plane of possibility. And I don't need to rush it along. But when it happens, I welcome it. Totally. Then what can I say? I totally love you. You're my absolute favorite scientist. <laughs> well, I love you, Mo. Thank you so much. It was an amazing conversation as always. Well, I'm honored to be here with you and I look forward to more connections in all the realms that we live in. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Dan, please join our pep talks and pep conversations for how we can build a better planet together. They are on drdansiegel.com. And also, I would strongly recommend that you follow Dan's work and read Aware, one of my favorite books of all time. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.